0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Hey, guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast listening more specifically to uh this the introduction to nonfiction november. Nonfiction November is kind of a booktube thing. It's the time of year, basically for alliterative reasons, that we read nonfiction pretty much exclusively. I'm gonna participate to a degree, not to the degree of exclusivity like I'm reading well, we're gonna talk in a minute. I'm reading something that, you know, it's fiction, non-fiction status is debatable. I'm trying to read some non-fiction every day, and uh, I've been succeeding for the, all, all three of these days of November. And one of the, the only thing I read that was, like, of note that I wanted to mention is an essay by John Berger about the biggest meal of the day.
0: The monkey gaining power, keeping him in jail. First of all, one has to begin with the fact which everybody has always known until recently, that life is full of pain. Not only pain, but it is also has a lot of pain. And tenderness is in part a response to that. But it is also something else. It, uh, it seems to me that uh, it is a refusal to judge. Uh, it seems to me that actions have to be judged with an incredible r- rigour and, 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 and all the time declared, uh, but not people. Uh, the, 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 I do not think that we have the right of any final uh, judgment of anybody, and, and tenderness is in a way an expression of that refusal to
1: judge. John Berger was, I think, mostly an art critic. He died a couple of years ago, but he was like a novelist too and a short story writer. And I think he did a little bit of sketch art himself. The monkey gaining power, keeping him in jail. Just like an artsy fellow. But so in this essay, he's talking about like class distinctions when it comes to rituals that surround the biggest meal of the day. So the first one he discounts just off the table, no pun intended, is the working class. He says that you find fewer rituals in a working class household than you do in a lower class household or an upper class household because he says the household finances of a working class family are too entangled in the economy, and the economy is unpredictable. And if you're constantly going back and forth between having a fair amount of leisure money versus having like no money to spare, it's kind of hard then for that household to decide upon the rituals that they can sustain year to year. So in his essay, he focuses on the lower class and the upper class. And he says the biggest meal of the day for the lower class is lunch. It is the biggest meal of the day because it is sandwiched by work. It is a temporary reprieve. It's an oasis. It's a way to both rest from your early exertions and prepare yourself, refuel yourself for the later exertions. On the other hand, he points out when it comes to the upper class, the biggest meal of the day is dinner. It marks a partition between the working part of the day and the leisure part of the day. And the reason that's a major distinction is because in his conception here. The lower class does not really have a distinct leisure period of every single day. And he says when you go into an upper class household, you find that the meal takes place in a dining room. And the dining room tends to have two doors. One of the doors leads into the living space where your daily social life transpires, and then the other door leads to the kitchen, and that is where the help is is. That is where the household labor is taking place. That is the door through which the meal arrives, and that is the door through which the waste is carried away. And he points out that in an upper-class household, there is this room, this isolated room. It is isolated from the social life symbolically. It is isolated from the labors of housework. And in this space, in order to convey the significance of the meal, of meal time, the upper-class family incorporates all kinds of low-key theatrics. Fetishistically, there are certain kinds of silverware that are laid out in a certain hierarchy on either side of the plate, and there are sometimes distinct different plates, all for different courses of the meal. And they lay there, and they glitter, and it's a nice little formal shiny tableau. And he also points out that in an upper-class dining room when it comes to the biggest meal of the day, each person's meal is presented to them pre-configured on a plate, and that plate is laid down in front of them, and that's their meal. Another major factor in sort of the upper-class big meal, the upper-class supper, is the importance of conversation. Having a very witty person or a very clever, smart, funny person over to dinner so they can provide entertainment at at the meal place. On the other hand, he points out, in the lower-class household, there tends to be the kitchen, and that is where the owners of that household prepare their own meal. And, in a house with fewer rooms, that kitchen area tends to open up directly into the dining area. There usually is not a great, like, comprehensive partition between where the food is prepared and where it is consumed. And because the preparation of the meal and the consumption of the meal happen in the same room, there is no need for the theatrics of different dishes. Also, he points out, everything is heaped into sort of large portion bowls or platters and placed in the middle of the table. And then whenever somebody wants something, they lift each of those platters and they pass it around the table. They hand the platter off one to another, and everybody scoops or tears or forks up their own portion before handing it to the next person. Also, the people who are eating this meal were also probably just involved in and may have exhausted themselves in the the preparation of that meal. And he says that in a lower-class household, you will more often find, though not consistently, that the diners can sit in a kind of contented silence around the table, not really talking, just eating and enjoying the fruits of their labor. Nothing revelatory in this essay. i just, just articulating what it is that we've all kind of noticed without noticing. I think that's what Chekhov used to say was like the major challenge and responsibility of the writer, which is not to necessarily interpret things or provide solutions for things, but that the responsibility of the writer is just the proper presentation of the problem.
0: One of the essential elements in tenderness is that it is a free act, a gratuitous act. It has an enormous amount to do with liberty with freedom because one chooses uh to be tender uh and and in a certain sense in face of so often what is surrounding us i mean it is a it is an almost
1: defiant act
0: uh of freedom
1: the other big thing i'm reading at the moment and uh the one that straddles that sort of non-fiction november uh, criteria is the New Testament the Norton critical edition of the King James version of the New Testament I'm sort of broadly familiar with the Old Testament I haven't read that in its entirety So I was a little apprehensive starting off with the sequel and I there have been passages so far I'm about 200 pages in there have been like a hand, more than a handful of passages actually where I kind of don't know What the fuck is going on? or just little things that are weird like I think it's in the book of Matthew dude I find myself starting sentences that way, and I don't know who I am. Somewhere in the book of Matthew, um, there's a part where Jesus goes, hey, uh, this- this is my friend Paul, who is called Simon. And when I read that I was like, well, what the fuck is his name? Why do you call him Simon? And there's no elaboration. Fortunately, again, Norton Critical Edition is 1,500 pages. It starts off with, uh, well, there's a long introduction, but then it's the main text of the New Testament, and then there are footnotes throughout, and it treats the New Testament as a literary text rather than a religious one and it points out you know metaphors and echoes of earlier literature and, and i have read whatever i I've belatedly learned are called the synoptic gospels those are the ones that i guess provide a synopsis of the jesus story so it's matthew mark luke and john i'm reading the uh, john now and the john one i don't like i thought i would because I read in the introduction of that particular gospel that it's like a dialogue. That it's more philosophical, it's more about like the teachings of Jesus rather than just, you know, telling what he did. But I don't know, there's some unsettling things and like there's a tone of arrogance in, in this gospel that isn't in the other ones. And one of the things that I, I find myself apprehensive about even ad- admitting to myself is that I like the book. They're legitimately poetic moments and, and very powerful stirring speeches and then the other thing i'm reading is the third vol, the third installment in the lincoln lawyer series by michael connelly dude i love these books these fucking airport lounge thrillers they're not particularly well written in terms of prose but they're very clean and michael connelly is like a genius when it comes to shuffling storylines and one of my favorite in, increasingly one of my favorite things about these books and it's part of what turned me off for a long time part of the reason why i haven't gotten around to these fucking things until my 30s is something you might have noticed too without even reading them which is that michael connelly 20 years into his career, 30 years into his career, has the ugliest book covers in American publishing. Everything is like a metallic aquamarine nightmare. Everything looks like it was manufactured in 2002. And and it's weird how, looking back on shit from the like first few years of the 21st century, there's a very distinct aesthetic. It looks like the height of... of Pop culture beauty was an iPod at the bottom of a swimming pool at night with pool light on. They also had the worst movie trailers. Once there was a man whose prison was a chair. The man had a monkey.
0: They made the strangest pair. What kind of experiment was it, Jeff? What did you do to Ella? What did you do to me? The man was the prisoner. The monkey held the key. You want to be the boss now, is that it? Stop it! No matter how he tried, the man couldn't flee. Locked in his prison, terrified and frail, the monkey gaining power, keeping him in jail. The man tried to keep the monkey from his brain, but every move he made became the monkey's gain. The monkey ruled the man. It climbed inside his head. And now, as they would have it, one of them
1: is dead. Monkey shines. An experiment in fear. Where he just came in because I was laughing hysterically, and I'm crying. That's not actually um, audio from a movie trailer from the 2000s. That's from the movie Monkey Shines from 1989. And I just found that recording, and I downloaded it, and I cut out little clips. And um, I just decided to take that audio you just heard and go back and put it randomly throughout the episode. Um to amuse myself. Stop! Anyways, that's it. That's my that's my non-fiction November reading update. I had such a rough run of trying to do that previous episode of the podcast. I'm just trying to lob soft softballs at myself in terms of conversation here. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.